0: Visit com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, Lauren Steiner is joining us today, and we are in for such a great conversation about grants, but not just grants grants and grant writing, but also how we shape and change the power differential between us and our funders. Lauren Steiner is the owner-founder of Grants Plus, which is one of the nation's largest and most successful grant consulting firms. And when I share with you largest and most successful, they have over 30 full-time grant professionals, and they have raised over a quarter billion—that's billion with a B— dollars for nonprofits all over the country. Grants Plus and Lauren's work has been recognized by Case Western University, Inc. Magazine, and many others. In fact, if I were to list all of the recognitions that she has received, this intro would go far too long because we typically only like to do about a 90-second or two-minute intro. Hey, Lauren, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Dolph. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am Thrilled that you are here, in part because when I was researching for this episode, I read something really powerful that you had written. You said something along the lines of, you used to teach grant professionals to work in a broken system, and now you're doing something different. Tell me more.
1: Yeah, exactly. And not just grant professionals. I used to teach our clients, you know, look, this is the system that we have. This grant making, grant receiving system that nonprofits are in is really broken. And we can't do anything about that. But here's how to work it, right? Here's how to build that relationship. Here's how to get the in with the foundation. Here's how to have your board member call the board member that they may know at a foundation, this sort of thing. You know, this is how to work the system. And once the pandemic, Hit and the calls for racial justice were so loud, and everyone was hearing it. And in every of our own publications in our sector, we're talking about how inequitable grant making actually is. I realized that to keep doing what we were doing just was, was. Indicating that we were part of the problem, that I I personally was part of the problem. And that really just wasn't okay. It just didn't sit well with me anymore. It wasn't okay to say anymore, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a broken system, but this is how we've got to do it to make it work. It was like, no, you know what? How can we be part of the solution to this really long old problem of the white supremacy in philanthropy, that problem, right? How can we be a part of the solution? And, you know, it really actually took some time to figure that out because we are not grant makers, right? I'm not making those decisions and I'm not even influencing those decisions. We are absolutely on the other side of it. We are representing and working very closely with the grant seekers. And it, there's such a power dynamic there. So we had lots of discussions internally, our wonderful, amazing CEO, Dana Textoris, who's been with us for a decade, really kind of came up with the idea of language being, she's very passionate about language. And she kind of came up with the idea of language being that way that we, as grant writers, could potentially affect some sort of change because that is something we have power over. So, we did take that message out to the communities, to our clients, to other grant writers, and we're still working on it. You know, I mean, it, unfortunately or fortunately, right, it's not a simple solution. There is not a guide to equitable writing that is so easy that you could say, oh, I'm going to follow and I'm going to write this. So, now my language is equitable, but it's a case by case basis. And it really requires some pretty careful study. And I think it's just an evolving part of our sector. So we're working on it. Others are working on it. I'm just excited to see where things are going. But I think I can no longer ignore, you know, what's wrong with our sector.
0: First of all, I love the approach you're taking and kudos to you because I I know it's maybe easy when you're a solo independent grant writer to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But when it's, I'm going to shift a firm that has 30 grant writers and this impacts hundreds of nonprofits, that's a bold, bold move. But you mentioned that every case is different. And so I'm just wondering, can you share an example of a case? Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's the case of autism, right? So we've worked with, and we do work with an organization that serves autistic people. Going back several years, there was the people first movement in language. So that said, right, it's it's not homeless people. We don't want to use the condition to describe the person. We want to say a person experiencing homelessness. So people, writers, us, wanted to use that across the board. And so they started to say, people with autism, but then the autistic community really rose up and said, you know what, autism is not just something that we experience, it's a part of us. And so we want to be described as autistic people. And of course, you can't even paint that with the broadest brush and say, okay, therefore, all people with autism, all autistic people want to be described in this way. It's more about the lesson I think is, you know, getting to know the population that you're working with very, very carefully listening to them and figuring out how they want to be described and referred to. And I think that that's sort of the the magic of it is really getting in there and listening to who
0: who you're serving. And how do you lead that language with your funders? Yeah.
1: That is really tough because sometimes even the RFPs have ways of referring to people that are not necessarily as equitable as they could be, right? And it's all on a continuum. That's the other thing is, you know, there's exploitive on one side and then equitable on the other side. And everything exists somewhere in between and depends on your perception. So I would say this. So it's interesting, we were working on a very large federal proposal and um, it was with an organization, a very large organization. And we looked at what the actual FOA from the government, the the funding opportunity announcement, the way it was written, and we looked at what the charity, the organization, had written previously. And neither one, neither the FOA nor the previous proposal, really elevated the voices of the people served. It was really about the organization, their capabilities, their capacities, what they were going to do with the money, how they were going to spend it, this sort of thing. And we really challenged them to do the right thing and elevate the voices of those people that were being served as much as possible to really center the whole proposal around the journey of the people being served by it to include the it, obviously the very important information about the organization. Um, and ultimately it, you know, it worked. They were successful. And it was sort of in spite of an FOA that wasn't quite as informed, maybe, as it could have been. But I just believe like, you know, this is the time. I mean, all proposals exist in the context of what is going on around us. And so we can't ignore the world and the culture shift that has happened. And I think that, you know, it's just the responsible thing to do, to be writing our proposals in this kind of elevated way now, post-2020.
0: So one of the things that, as I think about this, I reflect on is I think foundations have pivoted more quickly around equitable language than government funders have. And that's purely anecdotal you're working with 30 grant writers, what's your sense?
1: I think you're right, Um, and I think that that's maybe kind of typical, it's hard to say, right? The who's leading, the government or the foundations. But I do think that they have the ability to take bigger risks or move maybe a little bit faster. And they have. And thank God, you know, I mean, we've looked back at recessionary times and foundations really do step up during those times. The government stepped up as well. I mean, so there was so much shift happening in the last couple of years. And I'm excited that things were moving. I hope that they continue to move in this direction and that, like you said, that the government will catch up. Change is happening. I I will just say that. Change is happening. It's happening faster in some ways than others. When you talk about foundations too, it also is case by case because the big national foundations moved Quickly, And they're talking about general operating and this, and that the, the bread and butter of your mom and pop nonprofit organization, when they're getting community foundation dollars and family foundation dollars from their local community, those foundations are much slower to make these changes. But the good news is that if anyone who works at a foundation, they're hearing about the importance of general operating support and you know, other things, less restrictions, less grant reporting restrictions. There was a report like 10 years ago called Drowning in Paperwork, how the whole system has created this system so that nonprofit organizations are just basically drowning in paperwork. And I see that shift changing. It's just a little bit slow. It's slower to sort of trickle down into that local community level.
0: So- drowning in paperwork i actually had this conversation with a client very very recently and and i don't really do grant consulting but every now and then i will just be like have you thought about this so i had this conversation with a client recently where they applied for a relatively small grant and when i say relatively small like under $5000 and yeah. it was and it was to buy something for their facility that would be installed so it's not it doesn't move it doesn't do anything like that and it turns out that they need to provide quarterly reports on that less than five thousand dollar item for yeah. the next decade for the so 40, 40 quarterly reports wow yeah and 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 I just had this moment where I was like ooh Ooh, h- help me understand. Like, I could see, you know, if it was a million dollar item, you might say, okay, you know, this is worth 40 reports. But help me understand for 5,000, like, how that's a winner for you. You're going to spend more money in staff time on reports.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would just do that. I would just figure out the math and figure out, like, you know, how many hours each report would take. And, and you know, I mean, I think the other thing that we are trying to do, and this is how, easier said than done, Dolph, easier said than done, is to challenge our clients to have difficult conversations conversations. conversations like that one with their funders and to say, look, you know, this is not what you're asking for and what we're receiving. I think one of the things funders don't even um, necessarily always understand is how much time these things take. So, you know, just doing, first of all, finding the funding source can take hours because there's no simple way to do that, right? Identify, go through a 990s, look look for like organizations and what are the amounts, you know, do all of that research and then preparing the proposal and everything in between all of your strategy. So, I think having those hard conversations with funders is incredibly important. One of our clients started conversations with funders. There was a funder in their city who would like be a likely funder for this organization but never did, you know, agree to fund them. And the reason they said was, you know, you're not tracking the outcomes that we want. But this organization is a Black-led organization serving a Black community. And they really believe that their approach is right. And they have measures. It's just not the measures that this funder wanted. And so we really encouraged that organization to go back And talk to them again. You know, this is now post-2020. People have different lenses on than they did before. We're not going back. And, you know, have the conversation again and tell them about what you're doing, what what it is that you're doing and why this approach that you have created and that is working and how it's working. And so those are those are some very fruitful, they're having some very fruitful conversations with their funders. So I think it's getting the guts to pick up the phone and have maybe a difficult conversation with a funder because what do you have to lose other than time and money, you know, like your client spending, wasting a lot of time on reports that might not even go anywhere.
0: Yeah, and I will say like, if I was that client, I would probably just offer to give them the money back. Because I would just be like, I'm sorry, I would show it to him. Here's how much money we're going to spend yes. just on filing your reports. Here's how much you gave us. We're not willing to lose money on this. Sorry, we'll, we'll eat the cost. We'll figure it out. But let me ask you, like, every now and then, back when I was an executive director, I would need to have that conversation with funders. And I know it was always a difficult conversation. How, how do you have that conversation about, hey, this this funding is not equitable and here's why?
1: Yeah. We have a saying at Grants Plus and we call it simple, direct, respectful communication. And I think that that just applies in life, right? And in, you know, your professional relations, you, you know, the relationship that you have as a nonprofit executive or a nonprofit staff member and with your funder is a professional collegial relationship, hopefully, right? And hopefully you have created that foundation of a relationship that you've planted those seeds before. And the way that we guide Clients to do that is to do what you say you're going to do, right? If you say in a letter to them, we're going to follow up, or in an email, we're going to follow up, then follow up, right? Make the phone call, you know, just be straight with them. And so if you have that foundation, I think it's pretty, you know, straightforward to pick up the phone and and have that conversation. The other way I think I really like sometimes is to request their permission ahead of time to have a frank conversation (laughs) and say, look, I'm wondering if you're open to a frank conversation about this opportunity, because I've got some questions and frankly, i have got some challenges with what you, you have offered to us. Approach it that way. I mean, if you've never been that straightforward with your funders, I really think now is the time because, like you said, you don't want to get into the situation where you are actually spending money because you received a grant. And I can't tell you how many times I've
0: encountered that in organizations. Once upon a time, I was doing an interim executive director engagement, and we'd received a large half-million-dollar grant from a funder. I got there about a month before it was time to write the report, and especially early on, I always like to see the reports we're submitting. So I like, can you show me the report? And then I looked at the proposal because the report confused me, and we essentially committed to provide, like, what would normally cost about $4 million of services for half a million dollars. And so so it was interesting because I ended up having that like simple direct and respectful conversation with the funder and and I'll share with you it, the funder was one of those amazing family foundations who kind of understands there's a power differential and also kind of understands that Nonprofits aren't perfect, and you know maybe sometimes they promise more than they could or do or they should promise. And so when I when I brought it up with her, she she laughed and she said, "Oh yeah, when we saw your proposal, we knew that, we knew that there was no wow. way you would be able to do this. But you know we we just we support you and we really wanted to fund you. And this was the proposal you submitted. And what a different conversation that was back on our side, like the fu- the fundee side, to be able to go back and say, okay, you know we don't have to promise the sun." the moon and the stars to right. get this kind of money.
1: And and how you got that information from that funder, from that grantor is having a frank conversation and then you learned, right? That's the those are the things that you learn in those conversations with funders. You learn what they really expect. You know, I think there's something that goes along with grant seeking that is is a myth I would love to bust before my career is over, like before I retire. And that is that Grant funding is, quote unquote, easy. This is usually usually told by a board member somehow, but that grant writing is the easy way to get money because you don't have to risk personal rejection by putting something down on paper and you wing it in somewhere and then money just sort of comes at you down from the sky. And it is not the way things work, right? When grant funding works well, there's a close symbiotic relationship. And we actually do know what that funder is thinking. I think one of the most dangerous things we can do is not have good, frank conversations ahead of a proposal and then be creating something that is, like you said, like way bigger, way more than they even expect, um, than is even realistic. You know, these funders are very savvy, many of them. You know, the staffed foundations that hire PhDs and master's level people in, in in the field that they're giving grants away, and they know what they're talking about. And so I just always implore our clients and any grantees to have conversations ahead of those proposals and learn as much as you possibly can about the expectations of the funders.
0: I love that. And as you say that, I thought about, I think, a common conundrum that a lot of organizations face. And it it's definitely a conundrum that, frankly, deals with equity. And I want to ask what your recommendation would be on how organizations should deal with this. So, so often we'll write a great proposal. Maybe that proposal is about, I don't know, to fund a staff position around a very specific program, and let's say it's for $100,000, and the funder comes back and says, congratulations, we're going to award you $55,000 for this program. How should the organization deal with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big it depends. And that is, you know, are there other potential funding sources that you could fill in the difference? And if the answer to that is no, look, we've looked everywhere else. You know, this is what we need to do. It costs $100,000 and we can only raise this 50 or $55,000. That's all we could get. Then I think you go back to that funder and you have that conversation with them and you say, look, we needed this amount. We are not able to get this from any other source. And and you can list out how you've tried or how you've thought about it or whatever it is. And so we're faced with a couple of options. And I think you go to them with those options and you say, we can th- return the fifty k. We can do a scaled back version of this program for for the cost that you know the the grant that you have provided, or you know something in between. I don't know. Would they consider that uh, over two year payment or something like that with the additional amount? I don't know. But I think we have to put it back on to them, right?
0: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. That is sage advice. So as long as as long as I'm asking you to give our friends who are listening some advice, the other question that I'm really um, think is important that we talk about is the starvation cycle of so many government grants, and so the standard indirect costs. Which let me just level set. You know, indir- you know I, I know you know this, but in case there's anyone listening who does not, indirect cost is like the percentage that the government will give you toward admin and overhead and your accountant and that kind of thing. Um, and so depending on the source, oftentimes they'll limit it to just 7% to maybe 10%, which is a starvation limitation. H- how should organizations be dealing with that?
1: Yeah, that is so difficult because if it is a a true ceiling that the funder has, has put forth, then it is up to us as nonprofit professionals to make the measured decision on whether it's worth it to pursue this funding or not, right? So do we think we can use, let's say, individual giving to fill in? Because individual giving is evergreen and usually not as restrictive as foundation, corporate, call it all together, institutional giving, right? So maybe there's a way that we can use our evergreen gifts to make up for the difference here but if that's not possible then i think you really have to make a very measured recommendation on do we pursue this or not if this is the cost of doing it? Now, if it's not sort of a hard ceiling that that funder has provided, then I think it, you're open to have a conversation with them. Um, they may have a line, let's say, in their budget form that says, what you know, what is your overhead? And I would always recommend being honest with them. Not in, instead of, I guess, the other side of it is, what do we think they'll be okay with, right? Do you think they'll be okay with 10%? Do we think they'll be okay with 15%? Have the conversation with them. Tell them what your actual overhead is and why. There's always a why. You know, I've never been, I've never, you know, I've worked with hundreds of organizations. I've never been in one and thought, oh, you know, this just makes no sense, especially successful organizations that have been around for some time. They have all figured out, right, like what is the right, um, um, what is the right share of our budget that needs to be to these overhead expenses. And there's just a, it's just a matter of explaining it. Now, the funder can say, that's too much, or that's not okay with me, or the board will never go for that or whatever. And, they're, and that's totally their prerogative to do that. But then again, it's up to us as grantees to decide, do we go for that money? Is it worth it to us to go for that money?
0: And is it ever okay to go to the funder as well and have conversations about how expenses are allocated. And so, for example, a title might seem really admin-like, but, okay, funder, can we make a case that this is more program than admin? And as an example, I'm going to make this up. You know, let's say we have an accountant who spends 5% of their time writing checks for direct financial assistance for clients. Hey, funder, they spend 5% of their time doing this. Without this, the client doesn't get a check. Can we allocate that to programs and not admin? Is that okay to do?
1: I think that's absolutely okay to do, 100%, because obviously there are guidelines for nonprofit organizations, but all of them track finances in different ways. And so we always we always advocate for, quote, fully loaded program budgets. And that means, what does it really take? What percentage of your IT, what overhead, what, what percentage of your floor space, you know, every expense possible put into that program budget? And then, yeah, you explain that to your funders because when, trust me, funders see as many, for as many organizations, they see all different ways of of tracking expenses. So as long as it, you know, makes sense and you can explain it, I think that's totally fine. And I do think that you should have that conversation if if you're, if
0: the funder's open to talking about it. And I'm so glad to hear that you're a proponent of fully loaded budgets, as am I. And one of the things, because I know some of our listeners are like, "Well, how do I calculate this?" And so we should probably talk about some easy ways to calculate it. Like, for example, taking a ratio of staff cost to total budget or space cost to total budget, and then figuring out what really, really portion of space that this program takes versus the entire space that you rent, et cetera. Well, what what are some fair ways to allocate costs without counting paper clips and going, "Okay, this program used forty five paper clips."
1: Well, you mentioned one that's pretty easy, right? Like, how much square footage does your organization rent or own or whatever? And then of your programs, you know, what portion of that are they using? Um, another way might be, let's say you've got your program budgets, and if you total those up, that's let's say that's 100%. And then if you break out, okay, so each program area, let's say it's really easy and it's 33, you've got three programs, it's 33 and a third for each one then I might take my accounting expenses or my IT expenses. Maybe you pull out the admin portion and then the sort of development and fundraising sort of admin portion and then portion out the rest of it to your programs. So, I mean, you could take every expense in that kind of a way. That's just one way to do it. I think there there are so many nonprofit accountants. There are people who are specialized in accounting for nonprofits that you can talk to. You don't have to engage them for a long time. You could even just engage them to look at your budget, help you maximize how you're presenting it to funders. I would you know, I would do that in a heartbeat if you're struggling with this.
0: Oh, I love that. That is such a good suggestion. And you're right. There are so many people in the gig economy now that almost any need, we're like, I don't really need someone all the time. I just need someone for 20 hours to help me with this. You could probably find it.
1: This very specialized kind of thing going on. And I love it so much because you can really just tap into like the greatest expertise just for what you need.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Lauren, let's just take a quick shift over to our off the map question and So I think I have a really incredible off-the-map question that's going to help me get to know you a lot better and help our friends who are listening get to know you better as well. So in checking out your LinkedIn profile, I noticed that you went to law school, you graduated from law school, you went to work at a law firm as a litigator, and then somewhere in your career, you had a choice to make. Am I going to be a lawyer and litigator, or am I going to move into a different space? Can you share more about that choice and how you how you went through the process of deciding what to do?
1: Sure. I would love to. You know, law school was an amazing thing. It was, it was awesome. It was great. I had a great job offer. I really thought that was kind of my path in life and my career. And once I got into law practice, and um, it was in the litigation practice of a pretty big firm. I realized quickly that it wasn't for me and I was looking for anything, you know, we were doing big insurance defense work. Um, I really could not care less about the work I was doing every single day. And I just realized I was in my late 20s and I realized, you know what? I can't be that person who goes to work. I, it's too much time. It's too much energy. I can't be that person who goes to work and doesn't care a lick about what they do. So I was looking for any way to make my life more meaningful. And my law firm actually did legal intake at a homeless shelter. It was the third Tuesday of the month. I went with a group of lawyers and I did legal intake. And basically, that meant just sitting across the table from a person. Um, there, were, there were men in the shelter and they would tell me their. You know, legal issues, and I would work to get them connected with a volunteer attorney. And so I was sitting there. I literally remember it was Tuesday night. I remember I hated my work day. I was excited to do this. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I sat down. I was talking with this man, and he's, he was telling me about um his legal problem. And it was that Sears was hunting him down for a five hundred dollars debt. And um, he was literally living in a homeless shelter. I had no, you know nothing. He'd fell on hard times, he'd gotten caught up in an addiction, his wife had left him and, and it left him with no place to live. So he was in the shelter. And now Sears wanted this 500 dollars And this was his biggest legal issue. And I was thinking, oh my God, what I deal with. Here's what I deal with every day on one hand, and what this man is dealing with, and what how easy I thought it could be just to help him. And In that moment, I was like, I have to do something totally different. I literally, I think it was within two weeks probably, I put in my resignation and I applied um, to work at a, a shelter that served people who were experiencing homelessness, and I actually got the job. And it's funny the reactions because my law school and my uh, my my lawyer colleagues were all like, "You go, girl! Good job! That's amazing! We're so proud of you!" And then everyone else who like didn't understand what I was dealing with every day at the law firm was like are you out of your mind that you would leave this career so quickly because I took a huge pay cut and you know I was newly married and we just had a mortgage it was like you know it didn't really make financial sense at all to do this but mental and my heart oh my gosh it made so much sense and for me development is amazing I think fundraising is amazing it's like a perfect fit for me because I get to talk to people I get to use my brain and I get to do something good that at the end of the day I actually feel like I did something good. I will say the biggest challenge that I've experienced in this career has happened in the last couple of years, though. And that has been since 2020 and this whole awakening, because I was a part of the awakening too, because I realized that I had been part of the problem. You know, part of what I've always done is, oh, I'll pat myself on the back. I've done good work. I've worked in human services. I've, you know, helped organizations raise money, you know, yada, yada. I think that what I have done has always been very helping the symptoms of the problem and never addressing the systems. And I think, you know, that has got to change. And so that's been part of my whole, you know, inspiration to do some of this work around equitable language and hopefully other things that can help influence and make change so that our sector can just be more equitable because I don't want to be a part of the problem anymore.
0: Lauren, what a really powerful story about what first launched you on this path to greater equity. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a part of my life. I've never looked back. Um, I teach now in philanthropy. And it's funny, I, I teach at Case Western Reserve University, a course on philanthropy. And I never took a course on philanthropy, right? Like I just sort of started doing this and then realized it was great and then did a ton of professional development. Um, but I, I work with these young people who are learning about philanthropy for the first time. And it's so inspiring because I think people think that it's what people People think of fundraising and then what it actually is, right? People think that fundraising is about twisting arms or, you know, making someone do something they don't actually really want to do in supporting an organization, but that's not the truth. What it really is, is inviting those people who want to change the world to change the world in the ways that you know it can work. And it's a privilege to do that. I think it's a privilege to work in philanthropy as I do um, and so, so yeah, it's been, you know, full circle. I, I, it is it's a calling more than, more than it is a job for me.
0: Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your calling with us. Thank you, Joel. It was great. And friends, you know, you can find Lauren at our website, grantsplus.com. And at that website, you can find grant opportunities. There are lots of really great recorded webinars. There's helpful articles, um, and guides about effective grant seeking, And seriously, seriously, check out the webinars because you will learn about everything from equitable language in your grant proposals to tips for a successful proposal. And I never want to leave you without sharing two episodes that you might enjoy if you found this one useful. And the first is episode 88, Media Relations with Antoinette Care. And the reason I'm going to recommend that one is because Antoinette also talks about Changing the script and how you're working with the media and really embracing the language of equity in that work. And then the second is episode 208 The Magic of Thank You with Sandy Reese. You know, one of the things that Lauren said is when it comes to philanthropy, and this is true whether you're talking about an individual or a foundation, people want to give. And the easiest thing for us to do is say thank you. And so, Make sure you download episode 208 with Sandy Reese and find out more ways to say thank you to your donors and your funders. And finally, listeners, please, it would mean so much to me if you rated and reviewed this podcast on your streaming app of choice. That is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And this is the one part of the podcast that always bores me because I say it every time and I really don't want to, but the lawyers, God bless them, we just had a lawyer, a former lawyer on, make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. I'm also, by the way, not a surgeon. But anyway, neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. I think I probably say this all the time too. If what you need is specialized tax, legal, and accounting advice, don't don't get it from late night TV, don't get it from a podcast, don't get it, don't get it from anywhere except a licensed, credentialed professional who specializes in the exact area that you need that advice in. And so if you're not sure what type of professional you should be having a conversation with, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to help you figure that out. And if you know what type of professional, but you don't know have a who. You can also reach out to me, and if I know someone in your area, I am happy to make that connection.